worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared as a liminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And if this is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how did the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have had so much to gain and have such an interior motive for putting a position on him. We'll never let the truth back come around there to the world. And I want you to to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? Don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now these people are in very high position, Jack. Yes. Uh, after this album came out, I guess Der Spiegel uh, published... Which, by the way, by the way, she yeah. defines Der Spiegel. Like, who is this book for? Like, like <laughs> Der Spiegel, like, <laughs> a West German weekly news magazine. I mean, a lot of, this is, think about people in LA. I don't think they, I don't know. Um, it's very, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she does, <laughs> she does do that. Um, I guess they did an article about it under the caption, American Girl Smuggles Out Russian Underground Rock and Roll. And then a Newsweek article popped out, and she was all over the West, but she was trying to get back to Russia and was worried that maybe, you know, something bad would happen and they wouldn't let her back in because this is like her whole world now, basically. I know she came over the border with a bunch of equipment via Helsinki because people told her that, like, if you rent a car and drive over, they don't kind of ride you as hard. Um, yeah. and that was successful. She said at this time, like in June 86, she felt like she was racing the Kremlin, trying to explain and promote the album before the KGB could interfere. And she thought if she could show the Russian government, the positive reactions people were having in the West, they might be thrilled and embraced me. But then they like denied her visa mysteriously for like a while, at least some element of the government really did not want Joanna Stingray coming back in because they thought that she was sus and they didn't like that she smuggled out a bunch of music. And there was also, I guess, an element of, there are a few currents going on, right? There, on the one hand, there was an embarrassment that like all of these kind of like amazing bands first got released in the United States <laughs> and like not in Soviet Russia. So that was kind of like an L being like, and I think there there might even be something to, to be said for that, but like maybe that was a tactical error for the Soviets to like keep mm -hmm. this shit just repressed instead of being the ones to share it with like the rest of the world and beating back against those stereotypes that like Soviet art was like 
not free, not wild, not interesting and stuff like that. But also, I guess there was a power struggle going on at the time, like within the KGB and like within other sectors. There was a real debate over like what to do with like Western rock and roll music because there were some people that thought that it was like a Western plague that was sent basically to like undermine Soviet culture. And there were other people that thought it was a generational current that should just be like, you know, keep an eye on it and, you know, make sure it doesn't get super fashy or satanic. But like, yeah, it's like, it, it's just something more organic than that. And like, at the end of the day, like these are Russian musicians and if the people like them, then hey, you know what? Like, let's let's work something out. So I guess she got caught in the middle of that because she was like this American girl running around, like uh, sort of illegally, like publishing this music without anybody's authorization. quite suddenly been given a nearly complete go-ahead during the last several months. In no minor respect that was caused by the Red Wave album, which was one of the very strong arguments for letting rock out of the underground. But there are people who are very nationalist and they are trying to preserve Russian culture, the Russian spirit, and for them everything which is coming here from the West is in itself decadent. Rock is the purest manifestation of that. I mean, I think those people, I, I would like disagree to some extent with those people because, I don't know, it, it's complex, but this was very Russian rock. Like like we said before, this wasn't just like aping the Beatles or like whatever the hot band was at, at the time, right? Yeah. Um, it really did express like a Russian subjectivity and et cetera, et cetera. And it just happened to be really good. And I think it would have appeal outside of Russia. But yeah, so she, she started reaching out. This is when she starts like reaching out, right, to her uh, politically connected uh, people, basically. I think at this point yeah. she'd gotten engaged to Yuri Kasparian and was going like had I guess you had to sign up in advance in the Soviet Union for like a wedding date and then you know she was going to go back from the U.S. and then marry him yeah but then and she makes visa, it sound she makes it sound like it's like repressive to have like a waiting period to get married and she's like <laughs> in America you can just get married whenever you want yeah it's exactly like, okay like like it sounds sensible actually um it's almost like a gun permit like wait like maybe you shouldn't be able to get one the same day you want one yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so okay 
Gorbachev is now like, I'm going to open everything up and blah, blah, blah. But then despite this like excitement that like, yay, like I, I probably won't have any problems anymore, right? Instead, her visa gets mysteriously denied. Okay, I'm trying to read because there's so many names in this part. Uh, so NBC called Joanna Stingray up and said they, like, they wanted to like shoot the wedding and Life Magazine wants to interview me about my emerging role as a musical diplomat. <laughs> they called me a young Armand Hammer, I screamed. So this oh, is like boy. she's really flying high. Her mother buys her like an expensive wedding dress and I guess uh, her mother was calling Dolores Bylinson, whose husband, Anthony, was one of our congressmen and a close friend. OK, this is right after she gets the, the devastating news. It's been denied. So her mother is saying, like, we're going to call her my friend whose husband is a congressman. And then her stepfather, Fred, should get in touch and mention that we should contact Armand Hammer for help, who arguably had the most pull with the Soviets of any American. I guess it seems like Armand Hammer, like, wrote back a letter that was like, thank you, young lady. Uh, that's very interesting. Good luck. I I've returned the tapes you sent me. <laughs> like he's like fuck off, basically, and yeah. So I don't know. That's a little weird. Um, Which is probably one of the funnier things he's ever done. Yeah, I know, right? Okay, so now this is where we really see like the 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 subtraining connect like social connections of Joanna Stinger the really come politically up. affluent. Politically family. affluent. Okay, so she says my mother had become a steamroller trying to get you know get somebody to overturn this visa thing. Um, from Dolores Bielinson, she was also given the names of Mark Paris and Kathleen Lang in government foreign affairs at the U.S. State Department. A close friend, Marsha Weissman, also gave her the contact information for Claude, uh, Armand Hammer's secretary, as well as those of Joan Mondale and Guilford Glazer, who had potentially traveled with Hammer to Russia. Someone else uh, gave her information to someone who worked in uh, Hammer's office. My stepfather reached out for help to his friend Leo McCarthy, the lieutenant governor of California, to see if he could get him to Mr. Hammer, as well as John Vandekamp, the attorney general of California, and his wife Andrea. But word came back that her visa had been declined by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the Soviet uh, Union. Okay, here's another sus alert. My mother wrote a letter to the singer-songwriter Chris Christopherson asking for help, too. <laughs> he had played in Russia, and my sister Rebecca was currently the sound engineer for his wife, Rita Coolidge. Oof, okay. Congressman Bylinson sent a telex letter to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in March 1987 and to Minister Zakharov at the Ministry of Culture in Moscow. He explained with regards to my recently denied tourist visa that I had plans to marry a Soviet citizen, in addition to my duties as a musical ambassador in Russia. He urged those in Moscow to use their authority to grant me a visa, and even he, an American congressman, heard nothing back. So she was devastated by that. But then her stepfather, Fred Nicholas, was put into contact with Vladimir Posner, who promised to investigate the visa denial on his return to Russia after stopping through L.A. I just want to note here, because I had to look up the Wikipedia for Fred Nicholas. You know I did. And... Um, <laughs> You know, I mentioned earlier, he founded this thing called Public Counsel, the largest pro bono law firm in the world, who represented a lot of uh, different interests, including uh, Synanon, a self-help organization <laughs> of former drug addicts. So the lawyer for Synanon is Joanna Stingray's stepdad anyways, and was he was very active in national and statewide democratic politics. Then she gets her letter back from our man Hammer, who's like nice, but like fuck off. But then she found her champion on 420, 1987, in Senator Alan Cranston and his incredible assistant, Elmi Bermejo. So yes, uh, this is the same Alan Cranston that was central to the breakup of the Eagles in 1980 when Don <laughs> Felder allegedly said, thanks, I guess, to his wife. 
and Glenn Fry lost his shit and they almost got in a fight on stage and broke up because they were playing a benefit for Alan Cranston. <laughs> this is the same Alan Cranston here. He apparently was like touched by this story, allegedly, right? And he apparently said to Joanna's stepfather, nothing here matters except that two people in love are being kept apart. That is not okay. We need to fix this. Okay. So he, I guess, made this a real kind of... um like cause of his and actually cared about it. And he wrote down a bunch of letters and stuff. Yeah, Lieutenant Governor Leo McCarthy wrote a letter to Bill Graham because there was a Soviet US peace concert bankrolled by Steve Wozniak um, oh. <laughs> that was happening in 1987. Uh, by the way, uh, Leo McCarthy went to St. Ignatius High School, which is where the Getty children and Gavin Newsom went. It's probably the most elite Catholic prep school in San Francisco. And he also just so happened to serve in an Air Force intelligence unit at Strategic Air Command in his younger days. Hmm. So <laughs> like hanging out with Curtis LeMay and uh, my great uncle Jack and all those great people, uh, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and bankrolled by Steve Wozniak, who, you know, I not to, you know, bag on myself too hard, but as a Polish American, I'm guessing that maybe uh, his feelings about communism were more on the negative side than the positive i would if i had to hazard a guess if i had to bet and bill graham also like huge promoter of like the san francisco counterculture rock scene in the 60s big and i think promoting bands like jefferson airplane the grateful dead and so on and so forth and he was the one organizing this great concert and joanna stingray was going to perform there but then she got the word no yet visa denied so she wasn't able to go to the cool Bill Graham concert. Okay, so this is now when she, with I believe her mother and an NBC camera crew, decide to sneak into the Soviet Union via Helsinki uh, in a car for seven hours to get married. <laughs> Wait, real quick, is this yeah. before, or did we, when did she go to the White House? Is that after? It's around this time, I think. Okay. God, I have, because there's a picture where she goes yeah. to the White House to like plead her case. But she didn't really make it clear when she did that, though. No, there was a, there was like a picture in here. Yeah, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, and I think oh yeah, she wrote a letter to send with the Red Wave album to both Gorbachev and Reagan, explaining how she was working to establish a cultural bond between two countries by introducing Americans to the exciting music created by Russian rockers, and et cetera, et cetera. And then she like did go to the White House, but then. You know, uh, somebody in the Reagan administration was listening, apparently. So she goes in and goes out, but says that it was right around the time I snuck into Russia for seven hours from Finland that, unbeknownst to any of us, U.S. Secretary of State George Shultz was discussing with Soviet Foreign Minister uh, Edward Shevardnadze about an upcoming meeting between President Reagan and General Secretary Gorbachev. Thanks to the relentless persistence from Senator Alan Cranston, Secretary Shultz brought up my blocked visa 
I'll never know exactly what he said, but whatever it was coupled perfectly with the fact that the Soviets more than likely had learned of my break-in and re-registration at the wedding palace. So, uh, okay, like George Shultz says something and then the Soviets under this new, uh, you know, Gorbachev leadership decide, okay, fine. Because I think she went in as Joanna Stingray this time. Stingray, by the way, was her code name on the phone for the Red Wave album with Boris Grebenshikov. So like that, then she adopted it as her official like last name uh, and used a different identity and different passport to like go back in. Then... She comes back and I think get, gets word that like her visa problems are over. And then one day she gets a phone call from an Englishman, from a representative of David Bowie, who says, you know, basically he's heading out to L.A. and he wants to meet with you. So they met. They had like a lunch meeting. And David Bowie said, what you've done in Russia with the underground rock music is really something. What he wanted to do, he said, I want to buy the rights to your life story for $35,000. And he wanted to play Boris Grevenchikov in like, a Hollywood production of like the Joanna Stingray story. But I guess everyone in her family, all these LA people were telling her that's way too little money. You need to go to a studio and get like a better deal and blah, blah, blah. So she like didn't take the David Bowie deal and regrets it to this day. He actually probably would have played like, it probably would have been a sus movie, but like he probably would have played, like if anybody in the West could kind of play Boris Grebenshikov and have that like aura of, and kind of looks like him. It'd probably be Bowie. And then she also mentions, whether it's true or not, that she did sell her rights to her life story and got like 10,000. Yeah, she did. But she didn't get as much money. She didn't get as much money. And then, and then that company went bankrupt. And then later, then a couple years later, Molly Ringwald hit her up and was like, I want to play you and buy the life rights to your story. But then I think, um, I think at that point, because she was blowing up in Russia, and was like releasing albums with Melodia. She was like, Psh, like, I'm not going to. Oh, you know what it was? It's very silly in retrospect. Molly yeah. Ringwald was insisting that she wanted to sing all of Joanna Stingray's songs. And Joanna Stingray's like, absolutely not. Like, that's bull. You know, and it's like, um, <laughs> you're not like, okay, you're not the worst singer in the world. But like, you are kind of pitchy. And like, I mean, having somebody else like re-record your songs is like really not like the worst thing in the world. But I guess from her perspective at the time was like, I'm, I'm a rock star. Like, no. And so she said no to uh, Molly Ringwald. And so surprisingly, like this has never uh, been made as like a movie. It's a wild story. But anyways, she was also hanging out at the time with a uh, Sasha Lipnitsky, another figure in the scene who was the son of, or I believe the stepson of Viktor Sakhadrev, who was a Soviet intelligence officer who spent years in London and was the English interpreter for Khrushchev, Brezhnev, Gorbachev, and Kasigan. What's that years in London? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought you might appreciate that. And then, you know, the big thing that happens is like the one person to come over here and actually make like a real record was Boris Grebenshikov in like the late 80s. And I know we watched his David Letterman appearance from like 1989, right? Mm-hmm. And he recorded an album with uh with CBS Records, which was produced by Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics, which uh is kind of a was like a ubiquitous producer in the 80s, but also like a deeply hated producer by some people. 
Um, I remember listening to Ariel Pink go on like an Adderall field rant about him years ago and how like Dave Stewart just like ruined music in the eighties by just like synthesizing and compressing like everything. And it was like, it was kind of a thing, man, who's the sus producer today? He was like the Dr. Luke of his day. It was like, everybody oh, has yeah. to use him, but like, and yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's good. It's like a well-produced album, but it's very slick and like late eighties, you know? Um, yeah. and Boris released this English language album called Radio Which, Silence. Like, Russian music does not need to be slick. There's like yes. a depth to it that I don't think slickness works well with. It really does. Honestly, and you know, I don't know, some people might disagree, but I feel like that applies to Kino as well. I love mm -hmm. the the gritty like production on like their first like four or five albums. And like yeah. the group of Crovy album, the group of Crovy album was like their breakthrough in 1987, which it inaugurated Kinomania in the Soviet Union. And they became like the biggest rock stars. And it's like a great album. It is like very 80s and like highly produced because they got, I think they were able to get like real equipment over from uh, France and like West Germany and stuff like that. And I think they were on Melodia at that point uh, in 87. And so they had access to like real like top equipment and, but even like the sound of that, particularly their last two albums in like 89 and 90, it's like they really went in that direction of like, we need to sound more like slick. We need to sound yeah. more slick. And it's like, it loses a little bit of something that is like so raw and vital in like their early eighties underground kind of music. And Which, definitely. Yeah. Like you see that in the movie brought and brought to, Oh yeah. Where like, he's like dating a pop star at one point, the main character. And like, yeah. he's like a fan of Nautilus right and not like, as pompilius yeah another figure in the scene yeah and then like it's just like the like the pop music of russia in like the mid 90s is just like terrible garbage it really is trash like it's trash and, euro and trash. that it's euro trash like you know i think uh i think in poland like they called it like turbo folk or something like <laughs> i remember that being like a fad but it was like it, and honestly, it's like around, I've noticed it around the world, like musical production, maybe as like this digital technology and like neoliberalism kind of took hold in the 90s and 2000s. Like music just started sounding tackier almost everywhere, except like in like America and the UK, where everything was like so perfectly produced that it was just like overwhelmingly like those hits from the 90s still hit because like they're almost like designed to like crawl into your brain and like sound yeah. perfect but in general like this kind of um and I, I feel like I don't know to what extent because uh, it, it, it's like with Aquarium too Aquarium's music like the Radio Africa album from 1983 is like amazing and like really all over the place and like experimental sounding and raw and like cool. But then like you listen to like his popular stuff, like in the nineties and the two thousands. And it's just like, uh, this sounds like I, like I don't get it. Cause I'm not Russian. You know what I yeah. mean? Which is, I feel like what people would assume listening to like 80s Soviet music would be like, but I connect immediately to that era of music because it's like, it, I don't know. It's just alive. And this is like, I, I think a lot of that is that like lame, Dave Stewarty overproduction that everyone grabbed onto because that felt like it kind of mirrors like the mind virus of capitalism that Joanna Stingray talks about in like 1990 of like, oh, to be as good as the West, like we have to, you know, use these like fancy instruments and shit like that when actually what they were doing with like in this like MacGyver fashion 
was made some of the most unique and interesting fucking music that is like fantastic. So yeah. Yeah. It's like what the jazz and blues guys had to do. They were sort of forced into musical innovation. And then the moment you have all the resources, your, your music sounds like shit. Yeah. And that's exactly what kind of, uh, happened basically. I mean, even Joanna Stingray's like bootlegs of like her singing on her Walkman with Boris Grabenshikov, like sound interesting compared to like, her 1990 album on Melodia, which is like she's very, doing Madonna basically. Yeah. She's basically doing like a kind of Madonna thing. Her videos are kind of funny. If you want to check them out, uh, they were, I guess they were on Russian TV all the time and stuff. Some of them are deranged. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was over here like making his album 89 going on dave letterman he did say something funny in that when dave letterman's kind of like teasing him and like and you go where else from here all over the states yeah and then we go to europe in september do the russians know you're here uh-uh. <laughs> uh it's a secret it's supposed to be uh, what, what was the first uh, american rock and roll music you heard uh when you were a kid growing up american or any well, any nationality what did you hear first well, I guess uh, the first were the Beatles singing Komm, gib mir seiner Hand uh-huh. in German. <laughs> and you heard them where? On some kind of... Uh, Voice of America. Voice of America, yeah. Uh, are you making a lot of money doing this? Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, does, does that trouble you? Because as you know, uh, here in the United States and other places, uh, rock and roll people who are successful make huge sums of money. Isn't it why uh, rock and roll here is so boring? <laughs> Well, but it is making friends all over the world. Uh, It's all part of this perestroika we're hearing. Um, So, uh, uh, and and what what are your hopes now? Do you? I mean, do uh, you you can't make a great deal of money, or you can? How does that work? I honestly don't have any idea. Yeah, I mean, with the money you get from your concerts, where does that go? I think we're losing money on concerts. (laughs) Really. I'd like to talk to you after the show. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, it was a pleasure meeting you. You sound terrific, and I, and I hope the tour is a big success. Thank, Thank you, you for being here. Boris Grabenshikov. And uh, we'll, we'll be right back. You know, uh, you're aware that, like, rock and roll musicians uh, make, like, you know, quite a lot of money over over here in, in you know, in the States. And Boris was like, yes, that's why it's so boring. And you could almost hear like, <laughs> that's the one time in like the whole interview that the crowd was like offended. 
Yeah. Like there was like a gasp in the audience that he would dare say that like it's not it's boring and it's like not as interesting <laughs> as like Soviet rock music. They're like, oh fucking dare you! Like you know, like it. But it's kind of true in a way. I mean, in a lot of ways. Like he sort of had a point. But you know, Joanna Stringer was like running around giving interviews to Voice of America and you know Time Magazine and like all these other people and jumping back and forth. Meanwhile, Kino was like blowing up. She wasn't really seeing her husband Yuri Kasparian very much, and I guess he was like cheating on her a lot which yeah. uh, she didn't really like. And then, oh yeah, then she put on some art shows in LA with like some of the art that she had brought back. And she got in with, um, what's his name? Frederick Weissman, who was like a huge LA art collector and actually ended up like traveling to the Soviet Union with him. Yeah, um, Weissman was a very interesting guy. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't, I know I've come across his name before, but like I forget exactly if he was involved in anything. Uh, 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 I she, think at least he funded like a museum in Minnesota or something. Oh, yeah. They went to like, they went to Paisley Park, I think, on, on his private jet on their way to like Leningrad, I think, on one trip. They also had, didn't they have like a charity event where the advisory committee consisted of David Bowie, David Byrne, Keith Haring, Clive Davis, Christy Brinkley, Joel, Lieutenant Governor, Leo McCarthy, Carl Sagan, Frederick Weissman, <laughs> and Count Giuseppe Panza. <laughs> I forget what that was in reference to. Yeah. And then that's around the time also she met this woman in line at the consulate, I think, at the Soviet embassy in London, Kate Karam, who worked for Greenpeace. And then like that would come back around in the early nineties when she started doing like work for Greenpeace. God, there's a really <laughs> wild ugh, anecdote about that. Okay. No, actually yeah, the Greenpeace thing. So she did a Greenpeace art benefit in LA at the Jerry Solomon gallery uh, in La Brea Avenue in January, 1988. And the, the $150 ticket benefited Greenpeace's East West fund. Yikes. And uh, Hard Rock Cafe provided all the refreshments and Yamaha loaned the event a plethora of musical equipment. And that was the advi the advisory board of this Greenpeace thing had David Bowie, David Byrne, Keith Haring, Clive Davis, etc. So they printed beautiful invitations, Greenpeace did, with one of Victor Soy's drawings on it. None of the artists were permitted to actually leave the USSR to attend the opening. So she put up monitors around the gallery that showed like videos and interviews with them and stuff. She was really selling like the entire vibe of like the Soviet rock scene at this point to like very plugged in, like powerful people. She said that like the, the party, uh, she saw Frank Gehry, the architect, Graham mm -hmm. Nash, uh, Laurel Canyon, <laughs> um, <alert. laughs> um, the director of MoCA, Richard Koshalek, uh, the Hard Rock Cafe owner, Peter Morton, and a bunch of art collectors with deep pockets and shoulder pads. Whoa. And so they were all kind of like in this. So this is in 19, the beginning of 1988. It's still not, we have to remember it is still not a foregone conclusion the Soviet Union is going to disappear in the next three years, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to think that like things are still in play, right? Yeah. And like there's a couple things that I wanted to mention before we get like post-Soviet Union. Sure. Let me hit up a few real quick. So when she released Red Wave, mm -hmm. there's a passage in the book which drove me insane because <laughs> – she said after the, like when she returned to Russia with the Red Wave like album to show her friends, uh -huh. she said, I felt like I was Thor, thunder god of the sky, about to make it rain. 
And I was just like, uh, Mikhail Tukhachevsky worshipped Thor. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, God. And I'm oh, just like, no. oh, is this like freaking like Russian, white Russian code or something? <laughs> no, totally. It, it's it's really and, hard to tell, man. It's hard to tell. And then um, she she keeps mentioning Disney a whole bunch of times. That, the, 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 the worst thing about Victor Soy is that like the thing apparently he wanted to do more than anything else is just go to Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> It's the hardest thing I should say, you know, he, he seems like a sweet person, but like the hardest thing to read about Victor Soy repeatedly in this book is how badly he like idolizes Disneyland and just wants to go there. Do you want to talk about, I mean, cause some of the, you know, Boris and then also Victor and Yuri like came over to the U S a few times in the late eighties. Do you want to talk about, uh, Yuri's interesting experience, Jimmy? Um, oh yes, and- we have to. <laughs> okay. So Basically, Joanna Stingray marries Yuri. I think they get married in Soviet Union. Yes. But then he gets to visit L.A., like to see her family. They hold like another ceremony or whatever. And while he's there, Joanna's mom booked Yuri an appointment to the dentist (laughs) where he got fillings, crowns, and a root canal. And then they went to Disneyland where he had a transcendent experience. (laughs) (laughs) Yikes. Yeah. Uh, So that happened. And uh, yeah, I guess it it was life changing. Booked Yuri an appointment at the dentist tomorrow. She didn't even ask him. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, she said, "What? He's here for fun, Mom. He doesn't want to do that. His teeth look black from all the smoking. Who knows if he's ever had them checked in Russia? It's not healthy. <laughs> no, it's like it's like rich Beverly Hills housewife being like, he must go. And then you know they also on that same trip they went and met with Senator Alan Cranston." you know, who was so Mm -hmm. concerned with pushing the Soviets to not keep two people in love apart. They also did like a CNN interview because they wanted to interview Yuri. The interviews were not something Yuri enjoyed doing, but he went along with the flow probably because he had been drugged at the dentist. Uh, (laughs) It was in a dissociative haze. Um, (laughs) Jesus. Uh, Yeah. So, and then they went to Disneyland a couple of times. I think, well, I think the second time, um, she gave her car to Yuri and Victor and they drove to Disneyland on their own. Um, but still yeah. a little bit. Sus. And then she, she also takes one of her other friends, Sergey to meet Ooh, yeah. Frank Zappa. Yep. I was just going to yep. get to that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let me see. Uh, bring up the Zappa part. He goes right to the log cabin in, uh, I think that was Ser- Sergey uh, Karyokin, mm-hmm. the, the Capitan. He came out to LA and the next day I drove Sergey up Laurel Canyon to drop him off at Frank Zappa's house for the day. 
and she got invited in and you know Zappa was there and then they hung out and they also invited over the famous Russian immigrant composer Nicholas Slonimsky uh, who I don't know much about but since he's a emigre I assume he was like pretty anti uh, Soviet. There's a picture in here of them with each other, uh, you know, and bulls, I, of bulls. course, like, lest we forget that just a couple years after this, um, Frank Zappa would go to Czechoslovakia, like become best friends with Václav Havel, be anointed like the U.S. like culture ambassador to Czechoslovakia and then give like speeches where he said, like, I came here to watch communism die. <laughs> like basically. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure Frank Zappa was interested to meet some dissident Soviet artists. Right. And then also like in that period, but when her visa was denied and Joanna Stingray was like left out in the cold, so to speak. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> she got a letter from Yuri, her fiance, who basically she couldn't read it. And so she took it to a dissident, like, expat Soviet ballerina, or not ballerina, excuse me, ballet dancer, Gudanov, who translated it for her. So, like... It was actually even weirder than that, the way she told yeah. it. She was driving up, like, I think she might have even been driving up, like, Laurel Canyon or Benedict Canyon. And suddenly, like, the car, she looked into the car next to her, and it was Gudanov. Like it was this ballet dissident. Yeah, but she kind of she like, jumps out of the car. Like she met him before, though. I think she, maybe she was familiar. I mean, she definitely could yeah. recognize him and stuff. But it was like yeah, she just like passed him on the street and like jumped out of her car and were like, "Please, please, please!" Like, can you translate this for me real quick? And then yeah. uh, allegedly sped off like so fast uh, that she just left the letter with him or something. It's it's almost uh, maybe it happened like that. I mean, who knows? But it's like she knows all of these prominent like people who like defected essentially and yeah. it's like so when the kgb is like who do you talk to in la or you know are you talking to these russians and it's like yes she knew a whole bunch of them actually she had to and not to mention uh Falaliev, um mm -hmm. you know her friend's sister's husband uh so she she was lying to like both the kgb and the fbi that she ab knew absolutely no russian expats okay so then you know the late 80s are going on and she's she's trying to like bring these guys over and introduce them to like movers and shakers victor soy starts to get into acting and he's in this film igla mm -hmm. the needle uh which is shot in kazakhstan and then it actually gets in to the Sundance Film Festival, uh, I think in like for I think in 1989, and uh, and so she arranged uh, for them all to come out, but the festival would only cover the director's expenses. So, what did Joanna do? She applied for and received a George Soros grant to cover Victor and Yuri's trip to Sundance. Oh, okay. I completely missed that. <laughs> yeah, I I saw that this morning. I was like, oh shit. And uh, apparently it was a big hit at Sundance. And then Yuri and Victor came out and performed a few songs like on their guitars uh, at the end of the show and like blew everybody away. And afterwards they were like mobbed with like executives, uh, both American and Japanese executives who wanted to like bring their music to the U.S. and stuff. But uh, Victor was kind of uh, not interested at that. So then, you know, they came back to L.A. And another interesting one again uh, that her dad, Sid, Sid O. Fields, 
the anti-communist film director, uh, couldn't wait to see Victor and Yuri again and invited us all to lunch at the famous Friars Club to which he belonged in Beverly Hills. It was a a private club for show business that was opened in 1947 by my father's friend, actor and comedian Milton Berle and a couple of other famous actors. I could tell my dad was so proud to bring us all to the sleek white building. Okay, there's the second Milton Berle fucking thing that pops up in this and like there's something sus about him i i it, it's killing me right now i have to see is he a bohemian grove guy um, was this the la friars club yes the la friars okay. club have you seen anything else about it as I is sure it oh, is this where the like the friars club roast comes from maybe but also <laughs> the mafia guy handsome johnny roselli was fixing poker games in this same friars club <laughs> <laughs> oh shit okay let let's see right here just looking over doing a little wikipediaing um yes the the beverly hills friars club milton burrow got together bing crosby eddie Cantor, jimmy tarant george jessel ronald reagan and robert taylor and in 1961 they moved into the building where they now are Past members included Lucille Ball, Jack Benny, George Burns, Johnny Carson, Billy Crystal, Sammy Davis Jr., proud member of the Temple of Set, uh, <laughs> Judy Garland, Bob Hope, Susalert, uh, Al Jolson, Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin, Sid Caesar, Stan Lee, uh-oh, <laughs> the Marx Brothers, and Frank Sinatra, among many others. And yes, they are. that is where the, the roasts come from. And yeah, from the summer of 1962 to 66, John Rosselli, Maurice Friedman, Manuel Jacobs, and others rigged high-stake gin rummy games at the Friars Club. Over that period, the conspirators earned an estimated $400,000 in profits, and six defendants were ultimately convicted. Wow. That's uh, okay. Interesting. So a lot of heavy hitter. I mean, uh, Bing Crosby was a proud member of Bohemian Grove. So I feel like Milton Berle could have been, I mean, I wonder, I know that her stepfather's involved in democratic politics, but I, I sincerely wonder if her stepdad or her father was a Bohemian, even though they were both Jewish. So I don't know exactly. I don't know at what point Bohemian Grove started letting, uh, oh, yep, no, Milton Berle performed at Bohemian Grove. I knew I saw that. Yeah, I, I don't know if he was a full-time member, but he definitely um, he definitely performed there. Uh, so she's just bringing them right into the belly of the beast there. Also interesting, Natasha, uh, Victor's wife at the time, remembers that the club was full of old ladies, a few of which commented on her perfect teeth. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with these people? Why are they so obsessed with Soviet teeth? Like, it's so weird. Um, anyways, also one other weird thing that happened, like on that trip, they did get a small record company to release Grupa Krovi, the big Kino album, in America on CD, cassette, and vinyl, and they got they got a famous music industry photographer named Henry Diltz. And oh, yeah. I don't know if you saw this, but he had started out in the 1960s as an American folk musician, but became one of the most iconic rock photographers. He'd been the official photographer at Woodstock, as well as the Monterey Music Festival, and had shot many musicians living in the laid back neighborhood of Laurel Canyon above the grind of Hollywood. So you had like the Laurel Canyon fucking photographer there to like take some pictures of Victor Soy and Yuri. So, you know, things are just, you know, going great. But in the meantime, I guess things are she's going in and out of the Soviet Union 
the Cold War is kind of, you know, grinding uh, to some kind of end, blah, blah, blah. Also, um, when she met Bowie, the uh, I guess the second time, yeah. at least, you, did you pick up on which specific Bowie character she most resonated with? Oh, I believe it was the Thin White Duke. <laughs> Right. Oh, the oh, the thin white Duke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, not not Ziggy. Not not Ziggy. No, I think it was the uh, the thin white Mister West Berlin himself. Um, okay. Cool. Yes, cool. I think that's what it was. She starts to get like real. Uh, she starts to go like touring around the Soviet Union, like as Joanna Stingray around the same time. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Kino is going around tours around like the Eastern Bloc and even going to France. I think that's where actually Victor Soy had like a disappointing experience where he went to a French rock festival and expected people to be like open and like into it. But he felt like he got treated. He said like everyone was looking at us like we were a bunch of Matryoshka dolls um, bouncing around on stage or expected us to be some kind of goofy Russian thing. And they like didn't know how to process us because we didn't sound like that. And he just felt like kind of that was the first wisp maybe that this exciting opening up uh, with like the West maybe had some like not great aspects to it that were not going to be great for Russians, right? band the leningrad cowboys i never heard of that oh man they're like a finnish band and they have like really bizarre hair like i feel like it's kind of like what would you say maybe like demeaning towards russians in some ways i see i see Um, you know what that does remind me of is uh remember gogol bardello yeah that that was a band that was very much like they sort kind of played up like the, a Russian minstrel show, like kind of thing, yeah. like like very f- hyper folk, like indie shit. So I think I don't know. Like I think there was a lot of prejudice. <laughs> There's kind of like a lot of presumptions and pre- prejudice. I think about um, any kind of like music band that would come out of the USSR at that time. Like yeah, it, it's just like, unfortunate. I feel like in the like in the second half of the book you really get like almost more of the killer instinct of Joanna Stingray because like 
you can tell she's almost like sharpening her knives in some ways, because like there's this passage here where she's remarks about how like she would visit all of these houses of these Russian people. And she would be like, wow, these are first edition hardcover books. Oh yeah. Like I know, isn't it amazing? Most Russians seem to have things like this, if you can believe it. And she said, I had no idea or sorry. She said, I knew they had no idea how valuable these old books would be in the West. Oh my God. You get a, you get a vibe. Like maybe she's casing the joint. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like even subconsciously a little bit, like just like as an American mind, you can't help but go there and be like, wow, like you guys have such untapped resources. It'd be a shame. Like, you know, if, you know, it's a shame you don't monetize it a little more, you know, <laughs> and, and this kind of shit. Because there were things that, you know, it reminds me of um, somebody recommended us, uh, I, I think both of us on Twitter to read this um, or to watch this like Netflix documentary, A Perfect Crime, about the mm-hmm. uh, the murder of like the West German, uh, forgetting his name right now, but the individual that was like assassinated in 1991 after German reunification. And a lot of the like the B-roll in that documentary series matches with like some of the things that like the observations of Joanna Stingray in terms of just like people kind of liked the thing that they had. And then capitalism just came and like fucked it all like overnight. Mm -hmm. And the things that they thought they might be getting in terms of like opening up or having perestroika, they got way more than they bargained for. And like a lot of people had grown up long enough under these systems that they just assumed that like, some financial ghoul wasn't just going to come in and like fire the entire factory and demolish it. But the, the thing that kept being said in like the, by all these like German ministers, these West German ministers in that is like, well, these industries were completely uncompetitive and worthless. So like we had no choice but to destroy them, but are you, know, there was no market for their products that they seem to be implying that like, I don't know, in communist countries, the products suck, they're inferior, nobody wants them, but like they did serve a, they did serve a very important purpose for that society, like under socialism, like it was a place where people could work and produce things like, and, you know, like make a, like earn a living. And I don't know when you think about they're making like Fiat or Lada cars or things like that. Are these things really worth zero? Like a car factory is worth nothing. Are you fucking kidding? That seems like some weird, like a Milton Friedman brain shit that. Well, and it's also like, you can't believe them in the first place because like, the British a couple hundred years ago completely demolished the Indian textile industry. And like they did it to prop up the British textile industry. And it's like, it's not that it wasn't profitable or anything. It's like, no, like they just wanted to rape Russia. It didn't fit into a larger agenda, obviously. So they had to just like say that it was inefficient, which, you know, by pure cold blooded calculus, you know, capitalist, you know, uh, standards, perhaps it is not the most quote unquote efficient, but maybe it's the most efficient thing to accomplish the broader goals of the society in general, which are different than what it is in capitalist countries, which is basically like we need to provide every, like we need to provide a baseline of standard of living, like for everybody. And everybody has to have a job. Even Boris Grabenshikov has to go be a night watchman once a week uh, because, you know, like it was kind of like it, it was illegal if you weren't disabled or something like that. Like if you were an adult who's able bodied, you, you had to have a job in these countries. But then you also had the security that came along with it. Joanna Stingray kind of noticed as she went back in like 1989 and 1990, there's kind of an amazing passage in here. 
I think that we both noticed about. Mm-hmm. Uh, she noticed that suddenly when she came back in, yeah, in like 89 or 90, that one of the big things she noticed as she drove along, a change that came with the looser, you know, glass regulations was the littering. Russians seem to be littering everywhere. I would watch cigarette butts fly out of open windows or gloved hands, trash stuffing the gutters and creating patterns on the sidewalks. Sometimes I would even see cars pull up to a red light, open their car door, lay a bunch of trash on the ground before driving off. And then she launches into like this, (laughs) this like very positive uh, recollection of the crying Indian ad uh, PSA that aired on TV (laughs) in the 1970s and what a deep emotional impact it had on her and her entire generation. Like I'll spare you her describing the entire ad of like, (laughs) <laughs> leading to it goes on longer than you would think really way longer than you would think and it's so she was it's not that deep yeah and she thought about that ad and how it had been on billboards and print ads as well as on tv and remembered it had won awards and affected many many people and for her you know it, it became the quintessential symbol of environmental idealism and inspired a movement towards cleaner living it definitely was environmental idealism uh in the Leninist <laughs> sense, uh, I think so. So an energy efficient light bulb went off in her head. She needed to do a PSA for Russians to create awareness about the harm of littering. I had never seen or heard anything like this on Russian TV, but I wasn't deterred. I sat there in my room for hours, wheels turning in my head. So eventually she got like all these band members to like go and do this like funny kind of PSA, like music video ad, like where all the cool rockers were like, yo, like don't litter. And it like was played on TV all the time. But just to stop right there, it, isn't it funny that in the first years when she was going to the Soviet Union, there was uh, no litter anywhere? And then, like, what changed between like 1986 and like 1990? Hmm. Like, I'm trying to think. Like, no, seriously. Like, when I was writing my notes for this, I became like, I was like, okay, maybe I should just join Black Hammer because I'm like <laughs> thinking like she's a Becky, she's a colonizer, <laughs> she's a m- freaking monster. Because <laughs> like she literally says that like yeah, right here it's like my 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 ad like my commercial made everyone nicer, politer, and more civilized, and it's just like fuck off. Like you really think that people didn't know to not litter, and then. Like what, like, what is she possibly thinking? Like she's so close to kind of getting that, like the introduction of capitalism was the direct cause of like everything bad that started happening in Russia. But she's kind of like ontologically unable to like accept that in a certain type of way. I mean, I guess because she was one of these cowboy Americans that was there through the collapse of the Soviet Union And as bad as it was, uh, she was noticing opportunities kind of everywhere, even as she was a little bit like, ooh, about it. She is so deranged. Like she literally, she said, gone were the days of red and yellow. Green was the new color. And she got way more into Greenpeace at this time. Uh, yeah, yeah. She she hit up the friend that she had met in line at the Soviet consulate and started, you know, saying, I want to do this and that with you. I mean, she also like describes like the cultural vibe uh, shifting and uh, like in the summer of 1991, the last summer of the Soviet Union. Uh, when she got back, Glasnost was gone and suddenly capitalism was the new agenda. 
Everything from the West was suddenly being sold everywhere, and it seemed like some Russians suddenly had the money, even the U.S. dollars, to buy those things. Friends and neighbors began competing to see who could spend the most. It was one of the most bizarre things I'd seen, until I was walking down the street and saw people wearing new Ray-Ban sunglasses with the price tag still attached for everyone to read. It was like a bad episode of The Twilight Zone, where everyone is entranced and becomes consumed with the pursuit of material goods. As guys passed me on the sidewalk, they would flip open one side of the jacket to show the designer label. This cultural phenomenon began incentivizing people to get money at whatever cost. I, like most people in Moscow, depended on open markets for fresh fruits and vegetables that were brought up from the southern parts of the country. I started hearing crazy rumors that unripe tomatoes were being injected with urine to make them red. I had no idea what to make of it. Russia had become the Wild West. There were stories that Westerners were being beat up for their belongings, and allegedly one guy got hit in the back of his head with a baseball bat just so someone could steal his New York cap. I suddenly realized with a shock that as much as I had complained over the years about being followed by the KGB, they had been like my own private security guards. No one would even think about touching me if they knew I was being watched. Without them, all Western foreigners in the Soviet Union were left to the hungry wolves. The thing about wolves was that, despite their smaller size, they were much more outwardly aggressive than the former Soviet bears. Also, just this real quick, uh, just to confirm that communism was on the way out, Metallica, ACDC, Pantera, and the Black Crows flew to Moscow as the Monsters of Rock to put on a free concert for their fans in the USSR. It was sponsored by Time Warner, who, by the way, like as we've, uh, I know, Collard and I have laid out in our like Eagles episode, etc., like are actually the product of like Henry Luce's like Blue Blood Company and like a mafia company that had taken over Time, like Warner <laughs> Communications in the 70s. Anyways, uh, they were allowed to film the event for a documentary. Metallica absolutely blew the crowd to pieces. James Hetfield's flowing hair and iconic mustache vibrated with his high pitches and the long guitar solos. There were a few incidences with the police during the set, dealing with drunken, rowdy fans, but even the police seemed thrilled to be there in the thick of things. I kept thinking how disgusted the old KGB would think it all was. The long, dirty hair, the eyeliner, the, the screams and the gravel in their voices. Just a few years ago, ACDC and their music had been banned from the Soviet Union. It almost made me laugh to imagine the old guards twitching, traumatized eyes and frowning muzzles if they were to witness this. Um, I think they were witnessing it and they were like, they did have traumatized eyes and it was justified. <laughs> like, <laughs> what the fuck? I mean, the, things are really going off the rails. But uh, by the way, like, we don't want to forget that at the end, I think it was at the end of 1990, the big thing, the big shocking event that happens, Victor Soy dies in a car crash in Latvia and which is very that that's one reason I think why he gets compared to like Kurt Cobain so much is because he didn't quite make the 27 club but his death nonetheless was like extremely unexpected and kind of devastating and represented a kind of like end of a moment so so to speak even though the other bands continued on
Joanna Stingray even mentions that like there were conspiracy theories flying around after that. There still are to this day, just as there are ones that like Victor Soy was like a CIA asset. There are ones that like the KGB murdered him because like he was, they were so freaked out at that point in 1990 that the Soviet Union was going to break up and they kind of uh, fingered Soy as like a potential, you know, foreign actor that blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't, I don't even know. Like when you say the KGB in 1990, it also, it, it gets very complicated because like which faction of the KGB at that point, right? Yeah. Like, no, because there were hardliners, there were reformers, there were a bunch of people who were like getting fully compromised by like other like intelligence agencies at the proverbial project hammer the rumored project hammer in which like the all the gold in the soviet treasury was like stolen and like moved to switzerland or something (laughs) um and like critical certain kgb agents were corrupted i mean it's it's hard i i would be inclined to think that it would be like the more conservative types that were like anti-gorbachev that would have not been traitors but at the same time like they might have already been making their preparations to like get out of Dodge or go underground by 1990 that, because yeah. they saw where it was going. That's the thing. It's like traitor to who? Like at a certain point, everyone and no one's a traitor. I guess so. I mean, not not to say like there isn't a certain metric by which you can judge being a traitor, but like by the time the Soviet Union is collapsing, who are you, who's calling who a traitor, you know? Oh yeah, I mean you could easily uh, and also like who's it's it's just such a confusing time because it feels like the ideological apparatus just like gets like gutted from underneath and just like drops out of the equation and suddenly like every Russian, you know, whether they're like in the communist party or they're in the KGB or they're in the military or they're they're in this new nascent like private business sector, like they're all just like hard-headed realists like just trying to like make it or something and they're not yeah like nobody's i mean i guess like if you know if the u.s and bill clinton hadn't like rigged the the 1995 elections like the communist party would have been reelected back into power yeah so that was something that was like a possibility interesting i guess that's right after like joanna stingray kind of left right was after those elections well funny you should say that because uh one of the main narratives like whether you're a fan of Putin or against Putin, one of the main narratives is that he kicked out all of the fucking NGOs or yeah. started to put the screws on them. And she was tied in with Greenpeace That's very cool. much so. And she, she left around that time. Interesting. I mean, that, that, that would kind of line up. That would kind of line up because I just didn't comb as closely through like the final, like the actual post-Soviet you know, kind of like 92 to like 95. I mean, she did mention, like I said earlier, that she watched the Soviet flag be lowered. The very next mm-hmm. line is like, the mafia wants to meet with me. And like one of her yeah. former bodyguards is like, yes, I'm in mafia now. You need to give us some money of the record profit you make. And she was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, well, you pay TV network to play your videos, right? So like, we need some of that money. And he's like, I don't pay anybody to like, pay my I don't know what it's, it's unclear really like what he's referring to and she's like no I don't pay any and he's like okay it's fine but like maybe we have conversation later <laughs> yeah. it's like suddenly she's like but these then mafia she people. did leave <laughs> I mean well okay okay yeah. um so 
I did take notes on this latter half. I could go through a couple of things if you want. Yeah, sh- sure, sure. All right. So let's see here. <laughs> did you notice that she actually made a music video with her dad's film, The Truth About Communism? I noticed and it didn't get played on Soviet TV because uh, somebody noted, and she was like, come on, like, you know, it's the era of rock and roll. Like, of course, we got to have Lennon in the video. But like, yeah, she did you the watch it? To it. it is um, I think I've seen disgusting. it before. Is it just like uh, Lennon's like, uh, it's like. Whatever footage dad. of like rock music and then it's also like images of like lenin from that movie <laughs> oh, god which are probably it, like the most evil looking ones they could find um and it's uh it, it ends with the image that says warning please remember not to take life too seriously See, that's the kind of bullshit that's like, it's not directly political, but you're kind of like showing all these images of like Lenin and be like, it's not cool to take life seriously. Like if anybody was a real care lord, it was Lenin. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's some real Generation X bullshit. About it really is. Unplugged. Honestly, like, you know, what was the Nirvana album called? Nevermind. Like, mm-hmm. released, like, three months before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, like, every all that shit we fought about for the last 50 years, never mind. You know, like, that's the ultimate Gen X vibe of just, like, I don't even care. It, nothing there's, means anything. But who did that serve a- in the 90s, right? Like, the nothing, history didn't mean anything, and also we're at the end of it. Like... Uh, that really served the Western interests, I would say. And then there was that anecdote that she told because it clearly bothered her to that day, to this day that like at one point she got yelled at in an airport. Mm. She was with some guy. I forget if it was Sergei or someone else, but basically some Russian in an airport was shouting at them saying, you're discrediting the Soviet people in front of the Americans. Oh yeah. Her friend was shit faced. And, uh, yeah. yeah, her Russian friend was like, or I guess it was kind of her boyfriend at the time, uh, like got really drunk on the flight and was like stumbling through JFK and another like Soviet citizen was like, like, get a hold of yourself. Like you're disgracing yourself like as a Soviet citizen in front of all these Westerners, like stop it. And I guess, yeah, that was just, uh, I guess that was yeah. so, you know, what a square, right? <laughs> I mean, I just feel bad for all these old babushkas. You know, you think it's like not that long of a time of like that lady was yelling, like, if all of you lie on the grass, like there's not going to be any grass left for anybody. Fast forward a few years and a little, you know, glass and perestroika. There's literally no grass because it's covered in trash because nobody gives a fuck anymore. That's the, social, the thing. Like, the social vibe was kind of annihilated. The babushkas that she's referring to all probably died a decade early because of the falling life expectancy and then the guy that she got the gold beatles record for that was probably fucking stolen or sold for food 
Like, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like whatever, all those priceless possessions that she noticed that almost seemed like more special because of how like these people didn't look at them as like commodities. As just like, oh yeah, I have a first edition of that book. I have the, like this has sentimental value to me. So I never need to sell it because I don't live in that type of society. Everybody had to sell kind of everything in the 90s in like a really fucked up way. So I think that, I mean, God, I'm looking through like the last chapters now and it's just all about like the cool music videos she made. <laughs> and I'm like, I know. there was so much horrible shit happening. Like, like this is the period where like people were just gunning each other down in the streets. Yep. And like, she's like having the time of her life making music videos. I'm looking at this screenshot in here of getting pulled off the stage by fans until my bodyguards intervened, Moscow, 1992. And she's just like, "Eh." (laughs) like, she's like having fun, like having the time of her life. And I mean, yeah, it's like Victor Soy dies and then Joanna Stingray actually becomes a Russian rock star for like several years, which is she basically does the Courtney Love thing. She did. I mean, she does a whole basically like and she even had like one of her hits. One of her sort of hits was Soy Song, which she had like written mm -hmm. with him. Uh, She had a song. One of her first singles was Lonely Boy, which is like very much like it could be about Yuri or Victor, but it's like all about some mythical like Russian rock star who dresses in black. But like he's misunderstood and like everybody wants him, but he's always alone. songs are like kind of about or if they were not co-written with people from like Kino or Boris um, she's really like riding the crest of that wave just like Courtney Love and I mean I even kind of like I have a soft spot for Hole in certain regards but mm-hmm. eh, like I'm not gonna say yeah, like the, the music that Kurt Cobain wrote is pretty good <laughs> I mean uh, you know like Teenage Whore is a certain uh, kind of a revealing vibe given some of the stories about her. Probably the angriest this book made me was when she talked about the 1993 constitutional crisis. I was so mad when yeah, I was let's, reading let's that. Go, let's go. Uh, why, don't, why, don't you, why don't you take us through that? Okay. I'm not sure if I have the passage. I think I just wrote notes. Oh my God. Well, Can we talk okay, about this? Uh, yeah. Uh, I also want to no, talk about ahead. this movie she was going to make um, in the early 90s oh as gosh. well. Is that Freaks? I think it is freaks. Yeah. Yes. Freak. Uh, oh God. But anyway, it's, it's triggering me. If you want to go for it, I'm trying to find. Okay. Yeah. So I guess, let's see. She was hanging out with a 
band called uh, Brigada S a lot in Moscow in like the early 90s. And then one of them, Roman Kachanov, a young movie director, called her up and said, I want, I would like you to star in a movie I'm making. It's a fairy tale for adults. There we go with the Wonderland shit mm-hmm. again. <laughs> she had never acted before, but you know, hey, why not? So they met to discuss it. She could speak Russian by this point, but she couldn't really read Cyrillic well enough to read the script. So uh, her friends kind of read like the general vibe of this story. So Ether Magazine says that in terms of its genre, the movie will be a fantastic fairy tale with some comedy elements. Ina Tkachenko from Commerçant newspaper said that Freak is an excellent example of Russian comedy mystification, proving that there is nothing funnier than scary. A freak is born in a provincial maternity hospital at the age of 30 years and begins his journey through life. He has the unique gift to assimilate the image of anyone who draws his interest, from the Count of Monte Cristo to Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jesus Christ. Naturally, he is hunted by a KGB maniac. The freak, as expected, falls in love, but not before reading the revelations of the Kama Sutra. There is nothing more fun than the struggle between good and evil. Wow, uh, she said after the silence. That sounds pretty crazy. So he wanted to give her the part of the freak's girlfriend, an American named Jane. Nikita Vysotsky was cast as the freak. He was the son of the most famous bard singer in Russia, Vladimir Vysotsky, who had died in 1980 and was still selling the most albums of any artist over a decade later. The maniacal KGB colonel was played by the amazing Alexei Zolotnitsky. When I watched the film once it was completed, I thought Zolotnitsky was one of the best actors I'd seen from any country. He was funny and scary at the same time, a caricature that was as relatable as the people next to me. It was incredible. So, wow, actually, I hadn't watched this movie, but... Dear God. Okay, it sounds like... <laughs> okay, like, during a scene at the bar, the freak transformed into Sh- Arnold Schwarzenegger and had to carry me down some steps. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so maybe it is brilliant uh, postmodern comedy. And uh, they're just having fun. Now they get to make fun of the KGB all they want. Isn't it great? Uh, and the entire economy is collapsing. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just the... I love freedom. And of course, the Kama Sutra. I also want to mention that, like in the late '80s, at some, I think at one of Sergei uh, Kuryokin's concerts, um, he had a bunch of Harry Krishnas there. This is in like '87, '88. Yes, yeah, I and caught that. I, and I, I remember finding an article years ago from like the New York Times where like the Soviets had expelled all the Harry Krishnas in like '83 for uh, calling them a CIA mind control cult. <laughs> <laughs> And Let I also, right back in. Yeah, exactly. And I also noticed like in later years, I know Boris uh, Grebenshikov had a lot of uh, interesting spiritual interests, like some kind of like Russian Orthodox. But he also, I noticed that like he adopted like a Tibetan Buddhist name and he became like obsessed with uh, like Tibet and like free Tibet shit in the 90s. Oh yeah, Purushatama Baris Grebenshikov at the Aspiration Ground in New York in 2018. Uh, well, yeah, is, when, you, uh, yeah. when you get into that CIA funding, it's really seductive. You just want to stay in those projects. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess he, he's affiliated with something called the Sri Chinmoy Center, which uh, Sri Chinmoy is a God-realized or enlightened spiritual master. Uh, we meditate and practice spiritual life according to his philosophy, blah, mm. blah, blah. Wow, okay, so he got involved in like a new agey, uh, like, sort of Hindu kind of Harry Krishna adjacent cult that has strong links to the United States. So, you know, 
Huh. Uh, I'm looking at this picture right now. It's like all these women in traditional Hindi dress and they are, uh, I, I shit you not, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 12 out of 13 are white women. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, uh, I don't know. They have, they, uh, I'll have to look into this another day, but. Uh, the, uh, yeah, Stingray talks about one of the pop mechanics concerts where they had Krishnas and gypsies and they were doing stage stuff with like Orthodox priests and That's like right. S&M shit. Didn't they have like and Lenin getting like crucified or something like that? They had some weird shit. I think that might've been like rock around the Kremlin too, where the okay. vibes were so fucked. The vibes were so fucked. So there's two documentaries called rock around the Kremlin. One was like British and French journalists in 85. Pretty interesting. I can't find a version anymore. It's not overdubbed in like French, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah which sucks because some of the people are speaking English, but like it gets dubbed over. But then like in, I think 88, another movie that called itself rock around the Kremlin two came out, but it was from like a totally different director. And the vibes uh, are like you said, extremely fucked. Cause it's just like, at this point it's very much like, like destroy the Soviet (laughs) union, like uh, Satan, uh." (laughs) like, and everyone just has such a fucking bad, like antisocial attitude. And you just see where it's going. And it's like, Oh no, there's a performance where like on stage, someone's getting fake crucified and like Soviet, like people dressed up as Soviet soldiers are marching around crucifying the guy and it's just like okay so rock is being instrumentalized undermine the state at this point yes like it definitely went i think it kicked into like overdrive it kind of required i think like perestroika and glasnost to like actually reach that kind of stage of liftoff where it could be actively disruptive to like soviet society like it yeah. was somewhat being contained but i don't know if they would have been able to roll it out like ready like ready to go if it hadn't been for like the groundwork that was laid by people like Joanna Stingray, even if somebody was just passively surveilling her and getting access to some of the stuff that she was like bringing back with her, they would be able to figure out, okay, these guys are the people that we should try to like help out or bring into our orbit, like invite Boris to more embassy parties. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Send in some Harry Krishnas. (laughs) (laughs) So did you want to read that other thing? Um, Yes, I found it. So, okay. So for people who might not remember the uh, end of the Soviet union, there was the 1991 uh, and then there was the constitutional crisis in 1993. Mm-hmm. In 1991, correct me if I'm wrong, that is where the Soviet Union officially ended. On Christmas Day, yes, 1991. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think only a couple of people died. It, I say only, but like it was relatively peaceful. And then in 1993, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the there Supre- was basically. Yeah, the yeah. Supreme Soviet. I think uh, tried to, in, which was like a democratic organ, but had some residual elements of like people that didn't want to get rid of socialism at all. Yeah. Uh, tried to kind of rally themselves to push back against Yeltsin's like shock therapy bullshit. And Yeltsin responded by literally like, it's so funny to think about like tankies. <laughs> he literally rolled a bunch of tanks down to the Supreme Soviet parliament and shelled the building for hours. Yeah, while it was filled with a full coalition of various, like, elements, like, different, the like, 
left and right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're talking like not just shelling the building. We're talking like there were actually death squads out there, snipers shooting people. We're talking like literally the low end is like several hundred people dead and the high end would be several thousand. I mean, yeah, really it's disputed, brutal. but it's implied heavily that it was higher death toll than the official number. Mm-hmm. And so she says, suddenly an unexpected constitutional crisis started to unfold at the Russian white house, which is the, you know, the Duma, I believe demonstrators ended up removing police cordons around the parliament and taking over the mayor's office. They also tried to storm the Ostankino radio and television tower. But on October 4th, the army descended in tanks on the Supreme Soviet building. By Yeltsin's orders, they shelled the White House and arrested the leaders of the resistance. The 10-day conflict became the deadliest single event of street fighting in Moscow's history since the Russian Revolution which every aspect of that is like, just bothers me so much. Like how dare they remove the police cordons and like, Oh, have to bring up the revolution. (laughs) She continues. She says, this tragedy was incredibly powerful, not just because of political repercussions, but because it made me realize how distorted news reported on events. Every single person I knew in America called me telling me I had to leave Russia that their televisions were broadcasting a war that was happening in Moscow. As I stood with the receiver in my hand, I glanced out of my ninth floor window a little over three and a half miles from the White House and saw everyone going on with their daily routines. Some entered bread shops, others lined up for the bus. And so she basically is describing like, I didn't see anything. This wasn't a big deal. Oh, wow. But it's just like <laughs> okay. literally like 400 fucking people died. Like, shut the fuck up, Joanna. Uh, she seemed very fond of pointing out all the bread lines people had to wait in uh, during the Soviet era, but I guess uh, is equally fond of pointing out uh, that people didn't have to wait in bread lines. I don't know. Just like, ugh, that's not not a good look. Um, I didn't see it, therefore it didn't happen. Um <laughs> Did she say anything else about Yeltsin, positive oh, or negative? Man. Let me see. She thanked Gorbachev in the uh, end of the book. I don't know if you saw that. She's a big Gorby fan. She still like really vibes with like his vision. Yeah, she only mentions Yeltsin in the context of the quote I just read. That's true. That's the only mention of Boris Yeltsin the entire time. And I you think know, you must be too unpopular. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, this was also, it's like worth mentioning. I think this was first published in Russian, this book. Mm -hmm. And then it was republished in English like uh, a year later. But, you know, at the time, I guess she was too busy. This is actually kind of a, a, this is a a galling paragraph. Uh, Back home, I turned on CNN to see hours of footage of the demonstrators fighting in front of the White House and tanks shelling everything. It looked so real and oppressive that I kept glancing out of my window to check if anything had changed, but everything looked completely normal. From then on, I understood how press focus on crises to get more views and attention. (laughs) I decided to dedicate the rest of my career to playing a kind of media antagonist, only producing content that was inspiring and unfeigned. Whoa, okay. John Krasinski. (laughs) What's that? Uh, The, uh, what's that? Uh, What's his name? John uh, Krasinski. Yeah, that's what he does. (laughs) Mm. And, uh, I mean, that's, 
that's an interesting thing to write that like her main takeaway of like the Russian constitutional crisis and all the massacres. Yeah. She was actually participating at a concert during these events and <laughs> they were just having a great time smiling and unconcerned. But like the lesson she learned from that was how to use crises to get more views and attention. <laughs> and now I was going to dedicate the rest of my career to being a media antagonist. Uh, and so as a result, she started expanding her show, I guess, Red Wave Presents, to include the concerts of Western bands. I would license these concerts in the U.S. and England and broadcast them along with the advertising I'd acquired. I aired some of the most important bands in the music world. Depeche Mode, Pink Floyd, Dire Straits, Bob Marley, Genesis, Kiss, Roxy Music, Diana Ross, David Bowie and the Tin Machine, Willie Nelson, Frank Zappa, of course. Lou Reed, Seal, David Byrne Morrissey, and even a six-part episode of Woodstock. Oy. Then she released her fourth <laughs> album. But I mean, that. so I guess she was really good. I mean, she was involved in those Wild West years, just like making money, having a TV show, uh, bringing in all these Western bands. She became a broker. She like, yeah. she kept failing up and like, she talks about how like she was given ad space and then she would go and sell that to like Coca-Cola or Nike and she would make like huge amounts of money. I mean, damn. Yeah. And she that... said, my biggest dream was to have a sh my own show on Russian TV. And it's just like, this is a diseased person with a complete need to be loved all the time. Yeah, this is really I I see what I see what you mean when you told me at the very beginning, I don't know, uh that it was going to be a struggle to, to stay totally objective because it really is this last part here. I'm just flipping through it and it's all about like the the money moves she made and how great they are and like how she became Dude. kind of this like representative of like western liberal culture colonization basically. She she started doing anti-nuclear stuff with Greenpeace in England like she, okay, there's this quote. I cannot believe the gall that she would say this. She said she was doing a protest with Greenpeace in Moscow about some nuclear thing in England. And she gave a quote to the Moscow Guardian saying, having lived in Moscow during pre-Glasnost days, the concept of freedom of speech is especially important to me. And it's just like, bitch, literally everyone in the country lived in Moscow. <laughs> Everyone lived in pre-Glasnost days. What are you talking about? Yeah. Why is your opinion specifically more like, what are you talking about? 
it's just, it seems like it's just so easy to just to fall into the dominant currents of ugh, like this entire apparatus like descending upon this country god i mean yeah she's talking about all these like rich fundraisers that she held at like the homes of hollywood actors and blah blah Did blah you get that, the uh, the michael jackson connection <laughs> oh god no wait oh god okay what happened her, her dermatologist was arnold dr arnold klein who was michael jackson's doctor really? i am not certain but i think he might be the doctor who like made michael jackson look like that really like, oh my god who like died yeah dyed his skin yeah and things like that oh wow and so um, she she leveraged her connection with him to talk to michael jackson to like have him sign off on some Beatles song for some Greenpeace thing. She like talks about it in detail, but it's not a very interesting story except that she seems to know everyone and is constantly turning like social capital into real capital back into social capital. And then one other thing too, is that like in the, like the story of the rise of Putin, so to speak, one of the big incidents was the disputes over Channel One. Oh yeah, one yeah, the, I just saw this. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And she she was in the mix. Channel One was the station she was working with, and she wasn't like probably the by any means the most important player in that story. But like when the Kremlin reasserted control over Channel One, I think that's one of the reasons why she kind of got like I wouldn't say kicked out of the country, but like I think maybe her. TV deals kind of got fell through. Yeah. I'm reading that. She didn't say, but this is a real, uh, like this paragraph, uh, sums up a lot about this moment. Yeah. On March, on March 2nd, 1995 channel one was turned off for 24 hours. I had heard it was because they had realized they were losing millions of dollars to producers who controlled their advertising. Someone told me recently that a minute of ad time back then could go for 20,000 to $65,000. No wonder I got so many sponsorships since I didn't ask for anything near that. (laughs) What I found out later, though, was that the real reason the TV was shut down was to honor the CEO of the channel, Vladislav Listiev, who was shot and killed, likely assassinated the day before. He had made an initiative to take back control of the advertising and someone hadn't wanted him to do so. Days later, the channel was reorganized and after a number of incarnations came back as the government controlled Channel One. So, yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. that sounds like... A uh, shady t- TV CEO uh, gets into a dispute, gets assassinated, a bunch of weird things happen, and suddenly, like, the government ends up taking control of it. <laughs> so Yeah, and yeah. it's, like, like, far be it from me to be, like, oh, Putin, good, you know, but, like... <laughs> Somebody's got to put their foot down at some point, right? <laughs> the thing is, they had already stolen this TV station. And so, like, for the government to basically steal it back is, like, not the worst crime in the world. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I absolutely, absolutely. If if these ex-KGB guys did it, like, hey, you know what? Maybe they had to. I did notice that, you know, she, for her next album around that time, she's gloating about the, how she got her best album review ever from the Moscow Tribune. And it mentions that she was recording with Bob Seger, uh, parentheses, <laughs> Night Moves, and Shakespeare's I'm, sister. I'm sorry, Bob Seger sucks ass. Ooh, okay, all right. <laughs> Uh, the ghost of Glenn Fry is mad at you right now. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know this. The, the review says I predict a great future for her demons dancing track. Oh boy. So yeah, I guess that would, that does seem to be kind of like about the time that she decided to pack it up and go home was around the time that like that 
uh, that TV station got sort of a uh, re-expropriated. <laughs> yeah, so there's that, and they were putting the screws on the foreign NGOs, mm-hmm. and of course she was tied up with both of those things. And then around that same time, she's like, "Okay, well, it's time for me to have a baby, and I need to raise it in the U.S." because Russia's too unsafe because of the consequences of my actions. Yeah, Madison Alexander uh, Stingray, who I guess co-wrote this book, I think. Um, Maybe that's why there are memes in it. <laughs> I guess there are. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she she has some talks uh, with Atlantic Records and uh, Ahmet Erdogan, who I guess he, she sent her record to. Um, Wait, what? Yeah, no, she says that about after she had a baby, somebody called her up and said, I just heard the album you sent Mr. Erdogan a few months back, Shades of Yellow. This is really cool. We're interested in signing you. They said they're from Atlantic Records. And then she told them no, because she had just purchased a house just off Benedict Canyon. And by Madison's first birthday, I was basically running a one-child preschool out of it. So she moved back to Benedict Canyon, doing quite all right, uh, I think. And... Uh, with her, I guess, baby daddy slash husband, Sasha. I'm not sure which. Which they ended up divorcing, and now she's married some just architect American. Yeah. Oh, Sasha Sasha Lipnitsky, I believe. Yeah. The one who got drunk in the airport and was yelled at for being an embarrassment to the Soviet Union. Yeah. She left him because he was an alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then, I mean, basically then she just lived in America. Occasionally she'd get like a phone call from Russia that like another musician had died because uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people were dying in the nineties and two thousands or, you know, some Russian news crew would call them up to, to call her up to, you know, hear stories about, you know, these like glory days and stuff. But yeah, I mean, then it was like, that was it. Putin kind of got control uh, somewhat over the country and, uh, Joanna Stingray just like ended up, I don't know, just chilling, being like an LA mom, <laughs> like basically. Yeah. And we're the left, way she, yeah, I don't know. The way, <laughs> the way she describes it is she was like, I need to spend, I need to dedicate all of my attention and focus on raising my child. And it's just like, oh yeah, that sounds like a healthy thing to do. Very yeah. Beverly Hills. Um, and it's definitely not because <laughs> Putin kicked out all of the foreign spies. I know, the opera secret agent Stingray assignment was finally <laughs> terminated. Uh, her command was terminated in Moscow.
that's that's pretty much it. We've done a healthy dive today, but I guess you know, as we start to wrap up, what do you want to take away from this story, Jimmy, uh, in terms of how you view rock music under Marxist-Leninist domination, <laughs> uh, Western cultural psyops, etc.? What <laughs> like? I don't know. Is yeah, there anything else? Any so other crumbs on the table? Just a few concluding thoughts. Mm-hmm. So in the book Das Kapital by Karl Marx, yeah, there is it. the formula. I forget. How does it start? I think MCM, right? Money, capital, money. Mm-hmm. It's a constantly flowing conversion where you get money, you know, you invest it. The investment makes more money. And it just grows. That's capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. And he, there's obviously like three volumes of fleshing that out. What is interesting about jo- Joanna Stingray is that she is essentially the classic example of someone who can take real capital, turn it into social capital. Mm-hmm. And then you can take that social capital and turn it into real capital again. Because mm-hmm. she basically was able to like float as a do nothing artist in Russia and document all of this stuff, scoop up all of the creative stew, film it like broker deals and then leveraged herself into a media career in Russia, where then she started brokering connections between the two rock worlds. Mm -hmm. And then she made money there. So it's just like, if you have the money, you can play as an artist And if you play as an artist long enough, you might be able to make more money again. But the only thing that you need with that is the ability to just float for a bunch of years making no money. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how how many rich kids have you seen personally in your life who basically do that? A lot. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. No, I mean, that's an absolute, it's like an unspoken thing. And when like you look at the contrast between like the Soviet system and the American system. That's like always this unspoken thing about sort of like the American capitalist approach is that, Oh, we don't talk about that social capital thing unless Mm -hmm. we're actively exchanging it with one another. And then we will name drop who we know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but seeing these guys who I almost take uh, Joanna Stingray's point that these people did seem more free in the Soviet union in in a certain type of way because they, they didn't have to worry about capital really at all. Like it wasn't even, it didn't even add really into their equation. They uh, didn't seem particularly like motivated or interested in. And the kind of floating, I think what's interesting, I'm sure somebody who maybe came from a political family in the USSR or something like that might be able to float a little more comfortably than, mm-hmm. you know, the son of a coal miner. But people could basically float for the most part if they wanted to in the Soviet Union and live the way that like some of these musicians did. And there were both not the same barriers. So it wasn't just like bourgeois and petty bourgeois kids that got to do that. Like you could be from a working class background and also not scramble up the ladder if you didn't feel like it. But at the end of the day, that system basically got wiped out. And nowadays, I'm sure it's even worse than America in Russia. It's probably only like the children of people that maybe were more actively involved in like capturing lots of the economy in the 90s and subsequently that get to get sent to like, you know, school in like London or the US or get to get sent out to LA. And like, like if, I mean, if you meet Russians today, it's always interesting, like, 
if you meet a, like an actual Russian Russian in like Los Angeles, I feel like chances are their family is like rich and probably yeah. uh, became rich through because it's not like there was like multi generational wealth coming from the Soviet Union. So if somebody's rich now, that means that like they made some moves in like the 90s. Yeah. Whereas the other people that I run into in LA all the time are like Armenians, a lot of whom came anywhere from the 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever. And they are more just like straight up like working class, like old Soviet people. Some of whom, you know, when I've talked to like have a real nostalgia for a lot of aspects of this system and the luxuries it provided to people. I mean, even though some... People like Joanna Stingray's dad would balk at me calling it luxuries, but maybe it is kind of a luxury to be able to not chain yourself to the wheel of production and define your whole life around it and all these other things. And maybe it does create more interesting art in some ways. It's just like, I guess it's a, it's just a historical uh, shame that uh, ultimately it got subsumed by, you know, the real barbarians at the gates America, American culture, <laughs> the American culture, uh, the true barbarians at the gates, you know, it smashed that kind of like alternative paradigm, like her kind of doing the art world thing. That is the art world, right? And so many areas of like the media world, like being able to launder, she really did turn it into gold, even though allegedly she, you know, she donated all the money to Greenpeace or something. But you think about those trendy art gallery openings in LA in the late 80s and all these cool people and wealthy people, shoulder pad blazers showing up. Like it, any number of things, like it, the, so much of the art world seems to be about converting that social capital into real capital and like back into social capital again. And it's all just kind of like a sick and perverted bourgeois process that like all artists, like whether they love it or hate it in America, talk about a, a dictatorship of something. Um, you really can't like fucking escape it, can you? Right? <laughs> like, yeah. And I can't go down to the, the fucking job agency and just get like a night watchman job or something and just like not yeah. have to stress, you know? Like in America, it's like, no, 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 you have to compete for it. You know, it's mm -hmm. like in, a, in the Soviet Union, they were obligated to give you a job. Like if you showed up, in fact, you had to have one. So there were just places you could go, you could sort it out and then you could make little extra money on the side. Like she described in the book, something that like, again, going back to the very beginning, the hopping, in, hopping in some random guy's car, yeah. which like Russians explained to me, that's just how we do it here. And she, she described it as like an, you know, the, the original version of Uber basically it was like yeah. normal people using their cars. And she said, you would just stick your, your arm out. You'd pick somebody up. And there was just kind of a generally agreed upon sense that like you'd pay them a nominal amount for driving you X amount of distance. And yeah. like everyone, and it was like, it was loose, you know, it wasn't like mediated by some like satanic, like surveillance tech company uh, that was funded <laughs> by Saudi Arabia, you know, driving down people's wages and shit. It was just basically like this informal thing, which I guess is one of those things that kind of like lasted like past the fall of the Soviet Union. I wonder if Uber is like allowed in Russia to this day. It might not be, but there were all those little examples of like subtle kind of alternatives. But the thing was like you get extra money, but like you didn't need money the way you need money here to like basically survive. And, you know, that's something people say about breadlines like, oh, like breadlines, you know, sure. Like nobody wants to wait for like hours for bread. But like if you have to wait in line for a minute, like it's a little bit of different context in a society where everybody's entitled to bread. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, I would <laughs> rather everyone have bread. <laughs> yeah. Land and bread, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. no, I mean, that's the thing. Like, 
I know just enough about like the Russian rap scene to know that it's literally only rich asshole kids, like whose parents were like, you know, making moves in like the at, at the very least, they can say they are gangsters, though. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's a certain honestly. type of way. But yeah, I mean, that's the world that's taken over. Uh, that well, certainly that took over in the '90s. But it was it was enough. I mean, eventually Putin clawed some of it back, but it was enough to destroy the entire like Eurasian Soviet communist bloc, which uh, I think is a world historical tragedy that the world has not uh, mm-hmm. recovered from since. Uh, and, you know, allowed like the destruction of Yugoslavia, which allowed the destruction of all kinds of other countries around the world. And like the domination by this uh, like sickening mind war culture that we have, which I mean, absolutely. Uh, and like, just to wrap up really, I mean, I think that Joanna Stingray makes Pussy Riot makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Right? And she actually, because like, okay, I sent you this RT video where she was interviewed a couple of years ago by RT and they brought up Pussy Riot because they were like, oh, like, you know, you kind of seem like, uh, like blah, blah, blah. And what's interesting, uh, or she's like the bands you covered kind of seem like similar to Pussy Riot. And maybe she was saying this because she was on RT and they were bringing it up in the context of like Belarus. But she basically was like, eh, she kind of distanced herself and kind of like dissed Pussy Riot a little bit. But maybe that's like, maybe she doesn't want to admit the continuities Mm -hmm. between her and Pussy Riot. She was like, look, like Pussy Riot was like expressly political. Like they went into like the cathedral and sang this like song about Putin and did this like very deliberate thing to like be provocative and get arrested and blah, blah, blah. And whereas like these musicians kind of like were more like beatniks that wanted to do their own thing and their lyrics really weren't like overtly exoterically political or intended that way. And they were like artists, they were really just artists, you know, but I think maybe she's trying to like have it a little bit both ways there. It's and when, when her meal ticket conflicts with like her agency ticket. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Cause you don't want to be saying uh, she has to walk a fine line discussing some of these things with like modern Russian off audiences because she doesn't want to get uninvited, like banned from RT or at the same time, like, doesn't want to make it sound like she was a CIA agent, part of redacted program to redacted. Maybe <laughs> one day we'll figure out what that was. But I did mention to you before that like uh, Steve Pachenik, the former, um, I guess, confessed orchestrator of the murder of Aldo Moro, uh, CIA <laughs> State Department operative, former frequent guest on Infowars, um, one of the first oh, promoters cool. of like Pizzagate and QAnon. Um, yeah, really spooky motherfucker. Um, I remember on some like, Infowars segment years ago, he kind of went on this a lot, or maybe it was on like his YouTube channel. He went on this whole like confident monologue about out in the eighties, like we used rock and roll to as a psychological operation to undermine the Soviet Union, and it worked. And like just was like saying some shit like that, and it's, it's always stuck mm-hmm. in the back of my head because he is a spooky motherfucker. He like co-wrote like weird books with like Tom Clancy and shit. He's the type of guy that maybe would do a psyop, but I don't. I don't know. Is he referring to Joanna Stingray? Is he referring to just like seeding in uh, Western rock music, like you know, kind of later on, like? popularizing like Metallica and like Slayer and shit like that. I like that Scorpion song. Yes, exactly. The Scorpion song, Winds of Change, which I guess like I never listened to that podcast that was about it. It sounded a little bit limited. It was not that good. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. But again, yeah, things like that, which were also happening in like East Germany, you mm-hmm. know, getting like David Hasselhoff to like sing, uh, like risen, rising above like the Berlin Wall, like all kinds of shit like that was going on. And I think we do good to be vigilant about it because uh, they do be using these tools as weapons. <laughs> um, they have been and they definitely continue to. So I think even, you know, I'm like personally on the fence of like, can I say with 100% certainty that I think like Joanna Stingray was a CIA asset? No, I can't. But there's a certain certain threshold of susness that has been exceeded, which puts it in yeah. the category of like, there was something going on here. I think it has to do with redacted program. And I think like one mm. day maybe we'll discover, we'll shed some more light on what that is. But I don't know. Yeah. What's your verdict? A- <laughs> assets at a minimum. Agent, maybe, but <laughs> I, I've i taken the Fyodorov bill. I believe him. I don't know if I can sign off on Kino itself being <laughs> written by the I CIA, mean, but Can you I still listen think- to Victor Soy, you know, uh, <laughs> even with that? It's a hard thing to give up, you know, just like a lot of people don't want to hear about Frank Zappa. They don't want to hear about, you know, Jim Morrison mm-hmm. or like, you know, Paul McCartney living with a hypnotist, like... <laughs> You know what I mean? But I mean, we can always still appreciate Vladimir Vysotsky. Yes, it's, he's pretty dope. Like, it's not just Kino, it's not just Aquarium. There's also the Russian chanson, the bards, a lot of the prison folk music. Like, there's yes. a whole world of Russian music out there that I would also encourage people to check out. Absolutely. Maybe we'll have to have a chat about that one day because I know you're you've become more the expert on that side of Russian music which is also very interesting, right? At least a fan, but yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we dug around uh, here. Probably going to put a lot of music in this episode. Um, so it'll be Lord. like seven hours long. Um, but <laughs> You should, though. It's like I, it's really fucking good. Maybe I'll split it into two. I might even have to split it into two apps so I can just maximize the music. Um, yeah, because there's there's <laughs> too fucking much. But uh, thanks for thanks for going on the long distance ride today, uh, Jimmy. Um, Thank you. It's much appreciated. I'm sure, uh, we'll have you back on soon at some point. But uh, until next time, dear listeners, Slajiza Sabor. <laughs>
Субтитры 